Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week... Theresa May suffers a final Brexit humiliation. Uh, when we start having to refer to statutes from 1797, uh, when even prorogation is even talked about, then clearly we are in very uncharted territory. Boris Johnson boxes himself in. I said, I, I'm not attracted to, in, in that no, is the answer, no. And is Jeremy Corbyn on the brink? The, the thing about a bunker mentality, and I'm afraid it is known as a bunker mentality, is that you shoot the messengers who say things you don't like. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. Joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hello Paul. We've also got Brexit expert at the Institute for Government, Maddie Timont-Jack. Hello. Hi Maddie. Maddie's got a little bit of a sore throat, yep. but I think we'll be okay. And we've also got the director of the Open Europe think tank, Henry Newman. Hello. Hello Henry. Um, Paul, you were braced for a forfeit this week for continually calling Boris Johnson Boris rather than Johnson or Boris Johnson, but... Since it's the last day of term next oh. week when we do the podcast, I think we're going to save it for then. Yeah, do it then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Rachel's not here, and I think she, my head she needs to see it live as yeah, well. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, um, but it will be something that works in a podcast form. So, it <laughs> Oh, what was <laughs> that There might be gunge, but... I have never or something. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, this time next week, Boris Johnson is likely to be Prime Minister, but MPs have given him a rude awakening before he even takes office. Just a short while ago today, they backed an amendment aimed at stopping the new PM forcing through a no-deal Brexit by suspending Parliament. Let's hear one of the amendment's promoters, Hilary Benn, explaining why he brought it forward. The idea that Parliament would not be sitting at this absolutely crucial moment in September and October for the future of the country, when we see what the future Prime Minister brings back in terms of a deal or not a deal or is trying to pursue no deal, Parliament intends to be here doing its job. And anyone who thinks they can prevent us from doing that by locking the doors and saying, off you go, well, it isn't going to work. So, Maddie, can you explain what this amendment does? So, the purpose of the amendment is basically... Um, the bill itself has got a requirement within it that the government has to report on whether the executive in Northern Ireland has been formed or not. Well, it won't have been to Parliament from September until December, essentially. And what the amendment says is that once they've laid this report, if Parliament isn't sitting, then it needs to be recalled so that Parliament can consider the report and consider it on a motion in neutral terms. So essentially... Boris Johnson could choose to prorogue Parliament, but to fulfil the obligations of this Act, when it becomes an Act, MPs will have to return. And so they've essentially set aside a bit of time in the autumn when they could, in theory, try and do something to stop no deal. The amendment itself doesn't take no deal off the table. It doesn't change the legal default. It just says that actually you can't do something without us being there. But, but yeah, prorogation is now definitely off the table, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he could prorogue, but it's just the MPs will have to come back. Yeah. So it doesn't really achieve what you might want to do. Yeah. And, Paul, the size of a 
of the defeat, 41 majority creates a real headache for the new PM, or does it? Well, does it? Um, I'm not totally convinced Boris really ever was interested in proroguing. Um, um, you know, you, it's a bit like no deal. How serious do you think he really is? How much of it is a bluff? Um, I think it's less of a bluff than, I mean, more of a bluff, I should say, than the no deal stuff. Because I don't think in his heart he really wanted to ever get into this territory. Don't forget it was Dominic Raab in a, in a hustings in, in, on committee corridor who first floated this idea. It wasn't Boris, it was Dominic Raab. And once Dominic Raab had done that, he'd, he'd gone out, pitched it to the, to the right of, of Boris, then Boris kind of had to follow through and say, well, I can't, I've got to keep everything on the table because I'm so committed to Brexit. So I'm not convinced that ever it was his intention. What's interesting about that 41 majority, though, is to what extent is it a proxy for a no-deal vote when that actually happens? And what vehicle could be used for that we can talk about and whether it's credible. And Maddie's talked at great length about how the difficulties of that, you know, can you really bind the hands legally of an incoming prime minister and force him to seek an extension he's always said he never wants? I'm not sure about that. But the, the size of the majority today suggests there's enough Tory MPs. You know, your your people like Steve Bryan, you've got... Um, not just Gitter Breb in the hardcore, but Steve Bryan, uh, Jeremy Lefroy, pe- people like that, Paul Masterton, um, who actually you would have thought wouldn't normally go that far. They've put their cards on the table. They've, And you can imagine that the, the cabinet ministers who abstained will almost certainly vote against a no deal as well. So you have to add to those bits into numbers. There weren't many Labour people rebelling today, don't forget. So you have to counterbalance that, what the Labour impact will be. I suspect there'll probably be just enough numbers to to get a a no-deal, some kind of no-deal motion through. But the much more interesting question is, how many of those then will actually really, really go for a no-confidence vote? And I suspect a tiny, tiny number, if at all, um, of that. You need a real sense of peril to go for a no confidence in your own government. Ken Clark, yeah. Maybe a few of the others, yeah. But is it enough to get a, a, a majority in a no confidence vote? I'm not sure. So I think this is interesting, as, as Paul was saying, politically. right? This is a bigger, uh, probably, margin of defeat for the government than anyone had expected earlier this morning. Uh, 17 Conservative rebels, but also, I mean, this, uh, the idea of the Chancellor abstaining on a three-line whip is really quite extraordinary. We're having sort of conversation on the way in here about whether the Prime Minister could fire the Chancellor. I don't think she will, but I just think that the fact that that's even a possibility shows how totally through the looking glass we are in this Brexit world. Um, so I think it's, it's politically very important because speaking to one of the uh, MPs who was really supporting this um, this amendment earlier this morning. And he was saying that you've had a bit of a sense recently that because Boris Johnson's likely to win and because Boris Johnson's been very clear about no deal, and we've seen MPs like Amber Rudd saying, well, look, now I accept that no deal does need to be part of the armoury. Uh, and Amber Rudd on one hand, on the other hand, Sarah Champion, a Labour MP who voted repeatedly against the deal, saying she would choose no deal over no Brexit. So there was a sort of sense that the path to no deal was getting wider and was becoming more probable. Uh, and I think what the rebels will be pleased with today is that they've shown that they've closed off part of that path towards no deal. And that's the political importance of all of this. I don't think it's an exact match because you've got some MPs like Andrea Leadsom, for example, who didn't rebel today, but she's been very, very vocally against prorogation, but she's also quite relaxed in some respects about no deal. So it's not a perfect match. I think there's a political importance in all this. There's also a legal importance. Um, and as exactly as Maddie laid out, this is this is this goes quite a bit further than the Dominic Grieve style amendments, which... Uh, 
uh, I think government lawyers were advising wouldn't necessarily be able to trump prerogative powers, the ability of the government to uh, to call a prorogation of parliament. In this case, because it's very explicit, it would cut across that power. So, of course, at some point, parliament will need to prorogue because we have have had the now the longest session of parliament, I think, in history. But or at least in recent history. But when it does prorogue, it won't be able to use that as a tool to effect no deal. Ultimately, though, the same three choices presented in front of MPs now as have been through the entire Brexit process. Either you leave with a deal, or you leave without a deal, or you don't leave. And that's it. And all of the rest of this is just a diversion away from that bigger picture of what choice does MPs ultimately want to make when it gets nearer to 31st of October. Yeah, and Boris Johnson is is kind of boxed in now, isn't he? He's set some red lines on the Irish backstop, which actually make the negotiation harder, it would appear, than than what it may have been before. I was completely uh, blown away this week by this, by the, uh, first of all, in the sort of hustings, uh, in this, actually in this, the Sun hosted with talk radio, a joint hustings with uh, Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson not only ruled out a time limit on the backstop of five years, but said he wouldn't accept a unilateral exit either, which I just thought was just, I mean, a unilateral exit is essentially the same as getting rid of the backstop. So it just seemed... I don't know if that was a gaffe or that was part of this is all a, an attempt to show that he's not going soft to the sort of ERG side of the party. Interestingly, after the defeat today, there were already briefings from some Boris Johnson allies on the Brexit side of the Tory party that he hadn't done enough to stop this defeat. Quite what he was supposed to do to prevent this sort of defeat was, was, is a different question. But I think it's just you're already seeing those sort of tests being put to him. The other thing which was important was not just that Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt ruled out either a time limit or a unilateral exit from the backstop as a way through, but Boris Johnson also appeared to rule out yesterday in the hustings with uh, Ian Dale that was on LBC that he would accept a long transition. And some people inside government, civil servants I've been speaking to, have been working up options about how we could have sort of a, a perhaps a longer transition, maybe even an open-ended transition as a way of what Boris Johnson called this previously a commonsensical protraction of the status quo or something similar. Um, and whether that could be a way of avoiding ever getting to the backstop. But he seemed to rule that out and said, no, 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 he wouldn't accept a long transition and the transition would have to come, and to, come to an end well before the next general election. Now, that may be in 2022, but we're also hearing reports that could be as soon as next year, according to some plans inside the Johnson camp. All of this, I think, is... is at one level, speculative, though, because there are many different orbits within the Johnson camp, many different teams, and there's a lot of struggling going on within those teams about the way forward. So I, d- I agree with Paul. I think there are some elements of this which are bluff, but some elements of this are also serious. I do think Boris Johnson is very, very serious about the October 31st deadline. And there's a slight sense in Europe that what we're about to see from Boris Johnson is a Nixon to China moment, where the Brexiteers are going to suddenly go and make a big compromise. I don't think that's right. I think Boris Johnson is far more likely to say, in a different Cold War analogy, I'm happy with mutually assured destruction. I will go for no deal if that's what it takes and it will damage both of us and therefore we should find a way through to avoid that. But we'll see. I think that's a really good point about about last night in particular. I thought in a way last night was more significant than what he said at the Sun Hustings. The idea, as, as Henry says, has been floating around in various circles here and in Brussels that you could simply have a long extension and sort this all out and you, the, it would make the bag stop redundant. And it's been mooted. And the, the thing about Boris, he had a bit of wriggle room last night. You know, he didn't completely rule it out. You know, he did say well before the next election, but... 
how long is well before? Could it be twenty? Could it be twenty twenty one? He could get away with um, at some point. I don't know. That's not even really extending the transition. No, it's not. Yeah. I mean, probably isn't well before. Who knows what he means by that? I'd, but it was significant last night because if you lose that, then you really are, as Henry says, you are committed to a no deal Brexit in many many ways. You know, there is no other option. And the path to that got harder today because you can't pro road to get there. So the only way you'd be able to get there was with a positive Commons majority for it, or at least a Commons majority not doing something else like revoking or voting for a deal. It, it doesn't appear, not many people think revoke has a majority, but could the Commons form a majority about something else that could actually stop no deal? Well, I mean, I think the thing that everyone's thinking about is um, the, the the sort of path just to, to delaying no deal anyway earlier this year that the MPs sort of went down where they passed a piece of legislation sort of requiring the government to seek an extension. Now, we never really tested how that would work against a Prime Minister who actually wanted no deal, because I think by that point we'd all sort of realised that Theresa May probably would rather have an extension than go for no deal. In fact, she'd already asked for an extension before that bill, the Cooper bill, the Cooper Act, um, was actually passed. So there is a sort of world in which MPs try and do something like that again. But the challenge really is that the way they could do that was by amending a, a motion that the government was forced to lay under the e-withdrawal act because they were trying to get a deal through. You don't necessarily have those same hooks in the autumn. I think the other thing about the amendment today that, that is interesting is the, this sort of requirement to have the con- Commons consider a motion in neutral terms. Now, sort of par- parliamentary geeks know that means that it's not amendable. But the sort of original motions under the EU Withdrawal Act were also in neutral terms and MPs actually sort of changed the standing orders, the parliamentary rules to allow amendments to be tabled. So I wonder whether there are sort of, you know, if they're going one step at a time, whether MPs are now thinking about ways that they can try and make those motions amendable so that they could try and take control of time and pass legislation. Um, I mean, the other thing I would just want to add on the prorogation point is that actually I, don't, I still don't think that's a, it's still not a very good route to no deal because if you do prorogue parliament to get no deal how a government particularly against its will how a prime minister then thinks they can bring back parliament survive a vote of confidence and actually deal with no deal Mm. is is sort of completely like absurd because you have legislation you'll need to pass you need to have your mps on side to actually deal with potentially quite significant fallout you also even if you don't have to deal with sort of no immediate no deal legislation you're going to have to pass your budget at some point you know you need to pass a budget every year to raise taxes so actually that it, it really Getting to the point where your relationship in Parliament has broken down that much causes huge problems for the government, um, which is also kind of why I agree with Henry that actually we're kind of getting dis- distracted by prorogation, but really it wasn't a feasible route right. under any sort of means. And I think the, the example that gets given about prorogation in 1948 when the Attlee government used prorogation was in a specific case where there was a clash between the elected Commons and the Upper House, and the Upper House didn't want to allow the Commons to get its way, and therefore prorogation was used as a way of shortening a session. Now, that's totally different from an executive using prorogation as a tool to avoid the scrutiny of Apollo. Now, I'm not in favour of prorogation, but just a sort of brief thing, which I think sometimes gets missed in this discussion, is that I have some sympathy, a small slither of sympathy for those who are saying, look, MPs voted in 2017 after the Gina Miller case to trigger Article 50. They started that process, 80% of them. They knew that that process would lead to us inexorably leaving the EU uh, at that time, it wasn't clear that we could unilaterally revoke. They thought that would lead to a process where we leave the EU at the end of Article 50, either with a deal or without a deal. They then had three opportunities to vote for a deal and didn't take it. So you know, I think at one level, prorogation wouldn't be changing the status quo. But of course, it would be, I think it's a bad route to choose, and it would be emblematic, exactly as Maddie was saying, of a total breakdown in relation with the Commons. But 
I think what you could imagine is a situation where there was an accidental no deal or a no deal parliament fa- failed to sort of get to, to seek an extension or the EU vetoed an extension and we sort of fell into a no deal. And then things that with the moment you couldn't find a majority for, for example, passing the final stages of the trade bill or whatever else, you might suddenly find MPs thinking, well, actually, we do now need to get this legislation done. So it's not totally clear that you wouldn't be able to find a majority after no deal because you would have sort of knocked out some of those options. And the problem is, as I said before, we're still in this situation where MPs never feel they're actually facing the cliff edge. There's always the option of can kicking rather than a decision. Well, it's a good point because actually, I don't know what you two think about this, but someone in the Boris's camp said to me when they were wargaming the whole idea of no deal, they said, just as you said, Maddie, look, you're going to need all other little bits of legislation to make no deal work, okay? Um, you know, it's not literally, there is not a deal, fine, there isn't a formal withdrawal agreement, but you do need bits of legislation to keep mm. things ticky over. And they said to me, are Remainers really, really going to want to chuck us into an Armageddon situation and vote against legislation that is in their interest, is in the country's interest to keep things flowing? No, they're not going to. And they think that, that they can call the bluff of those Remainers. So I don't know whether that's representative, that's just one bit of the inner circle of Boris, not representative as such, but it's the way some of them are yeah, thinking. I think that's per- perfectly feasible, to be fair. I think we, we don't really know how this will play out. We don't know what no deal means. We don't know how bad it's going to be. There's so many unknowns. The civil service are doing the best they can to prepare, but you know, a lot of businesses aren't ready. We, don't, we just don't know what's going to happen. So I think the sort of potential chaos, if there is chaos, then yes, maybe it forces MPs to actually back the Prime Minister and say, OK, fine, you've taken us out, but we need to make sure that we can sort of try and mitigate any, any sort of big issues, or it won't be as bad as we think and the EU will actually decide you know what we want to wave some trucks through because we don't want it to be that painful for us either I mean I'm, I'm not sure that's going to be the scenario but we just don't know and I think that's that's a big issue. Just one more on this I, I, I was speaking to a leave backing Labour MP who said I think Boris Johnson is going to actually get something on the withdrawal agreement, bring it back and then because he's Boris Johnson the Tory party will row in behind it but because of what he said on the backstop now that's not possible, is well, I think, it? I think there, it is always possible because Boris is an amazing... In the same way that Theresa May was a horrifically bad saleswoman. So <laughs> she couldn't sell ice cream in the Sahara. She failed to actually <laughs> explain any of the benefits of a Brexit deal or any of the reasons why it was actually quite an effective uh, re- uh, relationship. Like, obviously, it has flaws, but th- th- she just let the entire political narrative be dominated by her critics and by the resignation of first David Davis and then Boris Johnson uh, and then Dom Raab later in Estimate of A. But I think Boris has... has is, is, is sort of on one level the antithesis he's very very talented politician and you could see him winning some changes and actually selling this as come on guys let's just get it over the line but more crucially I'm going to be in this controlling seat for the next phase and I'm going to be the one who takes us uh, in the jargon to Canada so I can see that and I think the, the EU are uh, not completely closed to the possibility of what some describe as surgical changes to the withdrawal agreement or to agreements around it but the question is what does the the Boris camp, what will the Johnson government, if it's me, it is him, actually want to ask for? And we don't yet know that. I'm not sure they have a plan. There are different camps putting forward different ideas. But if they do go with a serious proposal, and it's at the sort of, there, there are some things I can imagine where you could get enough movement from the EU, you could call it a different deal, and then try and bash it through the Commons. And if I were Boris, what I'd do, to be honest, is let the ERG solve my problem for me. I'd say to the ERG, right, guys, and just guide them and say, actually, this surgical bit of instrument might actually help us. And as we all know, he's got Rees-Mogg, he's got IDS virtually on board for anything he does, virtually anything. It's the hardcore that actually will, people like Francois, the people that will kick off, um, you know, even Steve Baker. He's got to persuade that really, really hardcore. Um, Do you come up with the ideas and I might go along with them? 
And, and they will almost dip their hands in the blood yeah. when it when it gets done, and, and then they can't oppose it. Right. I mean, also, I think if you're if you're kind of one of those critics like Baker or Francois, where do you go if Boris Johnson fails to deliver your sort of uh, fantasy version of Brexit? I thought it was also interesting that we saw today the Alternative Arrangements Commission, chaired by uh, Nicky Morgan and Greg Hands, um, come up with some new or some the final report on the, sort of how to resolve the Irish border. And irrespective of the sort of minutiae the details, which I haven't had time to go through, I think one of the interesting things is actually they came quite close. Well, I think they did recommend alignment between the UK, including Northern Ireland, and the EU on agricultural standards. Now, of course, this was this is pretty much what the government recommended in a different area at Chequers, and the whole of the ERG kicked off massively about it. And now you've got the kind of ERG's preferred Brexit wonk, Shankar Singham, in a report essentially proposing something quite close, maybe with a bit more wiggle room, to, to what the government came up with back in June of uh, 2017, was it? No, no, last year, 2018, sorry, losing my years. Uh, June of 2018, and Boris Johnson, of course, resigned over. Yeah. Um, just a word for Theresa May as well, bowing out with one last humiliating Brexit defeat. <laughs> Quite fitting. Um, now but it was on... Boris's defeat, of course. Now well, that's what everyone's yeah, saying. Maybe, <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> Commons People is very excited to offer you the chance to enjoy six issues of the week for free at theweek.co.uk forward slash offer with offer code HuffPost. The week is like a news filter pulling together articles and opinion from over 200 different sources. The week brings multiple viewpoints from across the spectrum all together to give you the full picture. And their concise summary of the last week isn't just politics and current affairs, but also covers sport, food, the arts and more. It's everything you need to know in one quick read, getting you outside the echo chamber and to the heart of the matter. Join thousands of people who trust the week as their essential curated news source. Try it for yourself with your first six issues completely free. Go to theweek.co.uk forward slash offer and enter the code HuffPost for six free issues. If Johnson does take office next week, he's almost certainly going to embark on a brutal reshaping of the cabinet as he gets the government ready for an October 31st Brexit. Uh, He's already committed to having one woman in the top four jobs and everyone in Westminster is having fun trying to guess the rest. Let's hear Johnson ally Nadine Dorries playing Fantasy Cabinet. I I think it would be... um, I definitely want to see Amber stay in the Cabinet and I'd like to see Amber in one of the top three jobs. So um, I think she might go to Foreign Office. Okay. Or if she went back into the Home Office, it would be nice to see that circle finish. But she also loves being where she is. Because yeah. you know, Amber has a heart, she's, um, she has a lot of empathy Ooh. in the department that she's with the people she's working for and on behalf of in the department she's at the moment. So I think she may ask to stay where she is, but I'd like to see Amber in a big job because she's an incredibly effective politician. Paul, how do you see the Cabinet shaping up generally? The interesting thing about Boris's statement of having a woman in the top four jobs was, did he include the Prime Minister in those top four jobs or did he think apart from me, the top four jobs. Because if it's apart from me, he's already got one, which he can tick off, which is Penny Morden in defence. If it's not, that, if it's including the Prime Minister, then we are looking at something quite interesting. Are we going to get a I think from the context, it was the four besides him. Yeah, specifically about the defence secretary right. as well. OK, that's interesting. So he can easily tick that box. Um, Liz Truss obviously would desperately love to be Chancellor. I'm pretty sure she won't become Chancellor. Where's, where do you put Truss, though? Because she's been um, pushing things. Business. 
Exactly. exactly. Business, I think, is perfect for her. And a lot of people think she might get education because she's been a former education minister. Uh, she was very frustrated that she wasn't promoted by Cameron to being education secretary under him. Uh, and she's, you know, state school. She's got a backstory. She can tell about that, reforming it. Good anecdote about that. Ah. She went to the local state school where I grew up in Leeds uh-huh. and uh, hates it. Uh, constantly slags it off oh, as really? being a bastion of uh, left-wing philosophy, essentially. Yeah. That's round a school in Leeds, and uh, she's never been back to speak to them, and that they're all very unhappy exactly about it as well. puts her in the job. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, she would love to be business secretary. Sajid Javid almost certainly looks like he's going to be the chancellor. Um, in terms of the other jobs, I think the really interesting one will be David Liddington's job. Liddington's obviously not going to hang around. I think if if you if you wanted to, I'd, I'd I'd you know like a shot if I was Boris, I'd say stay there because actually he knows people. He knows people in Europe. He knows people in Whitehall. He's been around a long time, but I suspect he will walk. Who would you get to do that job? Because it's a fixer job, cross Whitehall job, um, and I think it's it's very difficult. One name that was mentioned to me was if, if the Home Secretary job doesn't go to Ben Wallace, that Ben Wallace could get it. Um, now, Ben Wallace would love to be Home Secretary, but I've been told that Dom Raab is staked to claim, feels as though he's got a right to it, um, because he did run for the leadership. Um, but you've got to, if, with Boris, we talked earlier about the, the different circles within his, amp, his orbit, the people around him. He's got to satisfy the London lot. He's got to satisfy his old friends like Wallace. He's got to satisfy the newcomers like Williamson and, and Shapps. He's got to satisfy some, some Remainers, to be honest. Um, so he's got a really difficult balancing act. And I think that that Chancellor Duxley Lancaster job will be interesting, as will party chairman, because there's no way on God's earth that Brandon Lewis is remaining party chairman, given what's happened over Islamophobia inquiry, given what's happened the way that the, the part of the hustings was run early on because Boris did not want any media there. So they've fallen out big time. Who would you get to be party chairman? A woman, I think, would be pretty good. In terms of promoting women, Lucy Fraser obviously made a smart move early on. I can see her getting something in the cabinet, but I'm not quite sure what. What about an ERG person in the cabinet? I think it's likely, but I think it depends who goes where and whether you sort of set yourself up with the problem. If you put an ERG person, for example, in charge of no-deal planning and then you don't go for no-deal, they could easily resign and say, well, no-deal's fine. Uh, but it depends which ERG person and whether it's somebody like Jacob, who uh, has been very loyal ultimately uh, and actually moved with the government um, quite early on in terms of the uh, the deal. So I think there's various different things to look out for. I think the, 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 the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster is interesting, but the Chancellor is the most important mm. role in government by a country mile. Um, and if if that goes to Sajid, that will be important. I think Sajid's obviously very competent, but it's also, he's been in five departments, five, four departments. Uh, it's sort of hard to think of what his, he hasn't really had a moment of explaining what he's all about. So it's be kind of unclear what sort of direction he'd take uh, the government in if he was there. What would happen to Jeremy Hunt? I mean, it's also possible that um, Jeremy Hunt left where he is, but he could also, they could also try and demote him. Uh, there would have been some briefings from his camp that he wouldn't take that. Uh, but equally, I think, heard from some rumours that they could try and give him the business secretary role um, and say, well, look, you're all about entrepreneurship. You never mm. mentioned that. Um, and here's a chance to actually make it happen. So it might be difficult for him to turn that down. But then the Boris camp were also very annoyed with, or bits of the Boris camp, I don't want to get too far into the taxonomy of different Boris camps, because there's uh, many, as, as Paul was outlining. But there was some sense that they felt he had been a very aggressive opponent um, and therefore he sort of deserved either demotion or perhaps being chucked entirely. I think if if Boris tries to chuck uh, either um, Jeremy Hunt or Michael Gove, he'd be in difficulty because 
the parliamentary mass is just very, very bad for the Conservatives. Uh, obviously, Theresa May lost her majority in 2017, but the, the position has now worsened. Four MPs have defected, and the Tories are probably about to lose the by-election in Brecon and Radnorshire. So that means you know, five MPs down on already a very bad position in 2017. So balancing different elements within the party will be absolutely crucial to Boris Johnson. And if he doesn't do that, I think his honeymoon will be very, very short indeed. In any event, I think it's very difficult for him. But I think just trying to make sure that you've got different bits of the party in diff- uh, represented. The one test he's set all his cabinet ministers, and we suspect all members of the government, is will you sign up to October the 31st as a hard deadline? So we've seen already Amber uh, Rudd U-turning on her previous opposition to No Deal and saying that she would actually accept that No Deal does need to be part of the armory. And that, of course, makes it much harder for anybody later on to resign if on October the 31st they're presented with an option of going for No Deal uh, to make sure that Brexit is delivered. So I think that was the sort of the purpose of that. But beyond that sort of purity test, I think it'd be very, uh, it'd be a very dangerous thing for Boris Johnson to set about trying to eliminate all possible rivals from the cabinet. Final point, I think he will be wary, though, of people who continue to have leadership aspirations, and perhaps Dom Robb would fall into that camp. So I wonder whether they would be wary about giving Dom Robb a platform like Home Secretary, where they feel he could continue to bolster his own ambitions. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned Gove there, your old mate. Um, it wouldn't be very wise of Boris to get rid of Gove, would it? Or would it? I don't think it would be wise at all. Um, why you want to keep that psychodrama running? Just use him. He's doing a perfectly good job as he is. He's greening the government's agenda and, it, and its, its reputation. The same goes for Matt Hancock. Why would you want to move Matt Hancock? He's only just got there. He's a modern, fresh face. He's, he's, he's doing the reforming job that you'd expect of a, a moderate conservative to do. And he, you know, at some point, uh, to take on Henry's point, you know, yeah, he does have leadership ambitions for the future. There's no question. But that won't really matter when it comes to health. I think Henry's right. If, if you're going to kick off over something like Brexit, that's different. Um, and Brexit secretary, I suspect he'll keep Barclay there. Why wouldn't you? I think that's the most one of the most important roles. And that Theresa May's government has, has been hampered by the fact that she couldn't rely on her Brexit secretaries to, uh, to, to stand by her. And she didn't ultimately trust them to really do any of the proper negotiations on Brexit. So making sure that you've got somebody that you 100% trust in that role, if you're not going to do it yourself, I think will be completely crucial. And I just think that overall... Um, Obviously, you've got to try and balance different uh, different elements within the party. But the other thing, of course, is competence. And that's where I think Boris Johnson will be drawn to keeping uh, ministers like Gove in senior positions, because it's very hard to argue that they've done anything other than be transformative in all the departments they've been in. And he, he will be uh, very aware of that and keen to make sure that he's actually able to get stuff done in government, particularly without a majority. Uh- Johnson is much more likely to be a delegator than Theresa May, who is quite a kind of controlling PM. What implications do you think that will have for how the government runs? Well, I think it will be quite interesting, um, in particular on the no deal preparations, because sort of there needs to be some kind of coordination in the centre to actually make sure plans across government match up. And so it'll be quite interesting whether the sort of deputy PM role, which Liddington was really already doing for Theresa May, whether that sort of increases, but also whether, I mean, we sort of heard that sort of Theresa May's approach meant that in some instances it was harder for departments to join up their plans so it could be that actually if you have someone in the centre sort of beneath Boris like sort of acting as a bit of a coordinator for no deal that that could help things but I think at this stage it's quite difficult to see because at the end of the day he is going to be the Prime Minister he needs to be responsible for actions taken across government he can't really delegate that that's that's the way it works so if a Secretary of State makes a decision that, that, ulti- that the buck does still ultimately stop with him so I think that he can't just take a completely hands-off approach. He is going to still have to have to engage with with what's going on. I think Lucy Fraser for Justice Secretary is uh, almost nailed, oh, nailed yeah, that's on. That's a good one. But 
That's a good one. There you go. Well, Labour's anti-Semitism row has exploded again this week after Diane Hayter was sacked for likening Jeremy Corbyn to Hitler in his bunker um, in comments revealed by our very own Rachel Wearmouth, who's not here today. Uh, the drumbeat of a fresh leadership challenge is growing ever louder and the party is not in a good place. Let's hear Theresa May criticising Corbyn's failure to deal with anti-Semitism at PMQs this week. There is an issue, Mr Speaker, that needs to be addressed in this House. And before the right honourable gentleman stands up and parades himself as the champion of climate change or the champion of the people or the defender of equality and fairness, he needs to apologise for his failure to deal with racism in the Labour Party. Paul, Corbyn's looked unassailable for a few years. Is that changing? Well, certainly there's a definite mood abroad of another leadership challenge, another threat, a third attempt at getting rid of him. Um, you hear it all the time from Labour MPs. Um, the the leader's office are convinced that this week has been a grid, a Watson grid, and it's been executed in Watson fashion and it's been ticked off each bit of the grid. The th- what wasn't in the grid was Diane Hayter saying what she said at that meeting the other night. Um, that was not planned. Uh, it was off the cuff. She genuinely meant it. I was outside that meeting and it was fascinating to see so many centrist Labour members, not MPs, but members in the House of Commons. And they were really up for it. They, it was like their moment had come. Like they've been, you know, everyone talks about momentum. Everyone talks about the, the rise of the Corbyn supporters. And these were old... Um, not old-looking, but actually long-standing Labour members, many of them in their 30s, 40s, 50s, um, who were totally committed to not Blairism, because Labour First, the group that they were representing, is not Blairite. It's it's a kind of old-fashioned form of centrist bit of Labour. Um, and they were up for it, and so was Diane Hayter. So, but that was the sort of, in, in a curious way, maybe that was the Gavrilo Princip, you know, um, shot that actually starts this whole thing. Um, because... Out of nowhere, suddenly you've then Lily's leader's office felt they had to fire her, and then if one person's fired, then you've got this chain reaction in the in the peers, who obviously are not facing reselection because they you know they're not MPs, so they're immune from some of the normal pressures that MPs feel. So peers are really up for it as well. Um, when you add in all of that, this whole idea that. Will they wait until whenever the anti-Semitism report comes out from the Equalities Watchdog? Will they wait until the end of the year or New Year? I don't think they will. And it's like I, this autumn is where it's going to really kick off. Conference is going to be fascinating. Will there be a lull this summer? Last summer, do you remember the anti-Semitism round dragged on and dragged on? Corbyn didn't kill it. And it was his great chance to kill it, and he didn't. I suspect he won't be able to kill it again. He'll try next Monday, believe me, he'll try. Um, but I don't think it will satisfy a lot of these people because they think it's gone too far now. And it's obviously not just about anti-Semitism. It's about Brexit, crucially for a lot of party members. And the calculation amongst Watson and co is that, look, the party now, the scales have fallen from their eyes. They can see what Corbyn's like as a potential prime minister. They can see what he really... He's not that committed on Brexit. Uh, He's not on your side, dear dear left-wing party member. And so they think the calculus has changed. It's still going to be very, very difficult to get rid of him, though. Very difficult. Do you think he'd stand if he was subject? That's the other bit of the calculation. You know, all those rumours about his health recently, the the, the backdrop to that was not so much the health, but whether or not he wanted it and and whether or not he really wanted to be prime minister. And could he put himself through another leadership challenge, which he'd probably win, in my opinion. But does he want to go through several weeks of having to do all that again? 
Um, and at the end of it, what have you got left? Did you have a shell of a party, an even more divided party? And there is talk abroad that he may well just call it a day and say, actually, someone else, you do it for me. Laura Pidcock, who was next to him at the Durham Miners Gala last weekend. Um, you know, other, the other female left-wingers that may well be primed to replace him. Henry, the Tories probably want to call an election pretty quickly, given the situation in Labour, don't they? Uh, well, at one level, I think it's always tempting to face Jeremy Corbyn. I think the Conservative membership thinks that almost any Conservative candidate could beat Jeremy Corbyn. Of course, that didn't quite prove that, <laughs> that uh, correct in 2017. On the other hand, I think it's... Um, I don't think the Conservatives should take the risk of Corbyn lightly and don't take it lightly. So I think it's sort of... The Conservative MPs would be very worried that actually you could have a general election that could lead to Corbyn having the only path to power, particularly if you go into an election before Brexit's delivered. That might mean that there's a that Corbyn is able to just about club together a government with the Lib Dems, promising them a second referendum, and with the SNP, promising them another chance at independence. I think the interesting bit of all of this, I mean, anti-Semitism stuff is just horrific. It's also depressing to see uh, Labour outriders continually attacking the former Labour staffers uh, and uh, rather than actually dealing with the, the problem at hand. But I think what's interesting is how this interrelates to Brexit, as Paul was saying, and the fact that it's not just Tom Watson who, as deputy uh, leader of the Labour Party, I think has made some extraordinary interventions over the last two weeks, uh, particularly an interview on the Today programme where he really, I don't think I've ever heard any sort of senior politician attack their own party in quite that way from a position of uh, power within that party. Uh, but I think it's interesting that it sounds like John McDonald and others have begun to move away from Jeremy Corbyn and his sort of 4M, his sort of crucial inner circle of advisors and begun to essentially give up on them to a degree over Brexit. And Labour sort of supposedly moved off the fence uh, in, ch- in terms of changing their position to definitely being in favour of a referendum on any Brexit deal, except that that's not their position if there was a general election where they won power. So I think you're in a totally bizarre position where you're essentially saying to potential voters, please vote for us in a general election, but if you do, then you might not get the referendum that you want. Eh? I don't think that makes any sense to anybody, and that sort of just shows just quite how convoluted everything is still within the Labour Party and how this anti-Semitism row intersects with Brexit. And I think the big, big, big question as well is whether any of the public are really paying attention to this anti-Semitism row, or whether this is all seen as somehow a kind of a thing that matters to a few people sort of you know, mainly Jews. In fact, uh, Jewish members, of course, there's a lot of uh, a lot of tr- links between the Jewish community and the Labour Party. But does this actually change the way that the public think about Labour and think about Jeremy Corbyn's electability? I think it should. But I was absolutely shocked to hear um, a few days ago, uh, talking to a senior figure from a Bl- the Blair era, he said to me, look, you know, I really care about the Brexit stuff, this person was saying to me. I don't really care about the anti-Semitism stuff. I know it's, and the person said to me, I know it's important for you, Henry, implying that because I'm part Jewish, it's important to me. But for me, it just doesn't matter that much. And I just thought that was absolutely chilling. But I think that that may be, that may be how some people feel about all this. Just you know, why are we going on and on about this anti-Semitism thing? And really, uh, there are bigger questions for the Labour Party. I don't know. Paul, just a quick one. Who do you think could be, you know, you've mentioned some names on the left who could be the, the, the kind of new Corbyn. Who do you think would be the kind of ideal challenger? Because the party and the party membership is seen as quite left now. So if you were from the Tom Watson camp, who would be your there's ideal? There's no question that the, the, the prime candidate is Angela Rayner. There's no question. I mean, there's no one else who's available, who has the who ticks all the boxes. Um, she's fiercely loyal to Corbyn publicly. Um, she uh, has got a fantastic backstory. She's, in terms of people like Watson and even the Blairites, they all point to the fact that she once famously said in a speech, I wouldn't be here, I owe my life to Tony Blair because of Sure Start. Yeah. Um, that 
means that she's ticked off that bit of the party. She's got lots of union support, lots and lots of union support. And so it will be really fun. It's got to be a woman. There's no question. It's got to be a woman. So which woman? And Raina, in my, in my view, is streets ahead of someone like Emily Thornberry precisely because she ticks a lot of boxes rather than Formbury now as late in the day has come up to the you know the whole idea of being Brexit the most outrider of outriders on on Brexit within the shadow cabinet um and and I think that's not quite going to work because Rayner can get the other left constituency or a chunk of it through the unions and so it's going to be fascinating and then the big question is as we've talked before her flatmate is Rebecca Long Bailey they're incredibly close um and I don't think we would ever stand against each other. I genuinely don't think that would happen. So Bro- Brothers have before. Yeah. And, yeah. Even, <laughs> and even, you know, I don't think we'll have a Granita-style pact either. Because um, I just don't think that would happen from, from everything I've been told about both of them and talking to them, that that, that won't happen. And... Therefore, that's why I think Long Bailey, who had been considered as a, as a viable left McDonnell-endorsed, Abbott-endorsed candidate, may well be replaced by someone like Laura Pidcock. Um, there's not many, not really many interesting. candidates in the race. Right. Uh, Mandy's had a bit of a rest. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> let's just do a quick quiz. Yay. So ahead of the new PM taking office, this week's edition is all on cabinet reshuffles. Uh, no particular rules, just shout the answer or make a noise if you want to say the answer so question number one the post of deputy prime minister was created in a cabinet reshuffle which reshuffle was it and who was the first holder of the post Hasn't oh my was god it? I, was it, it Willie Whitelaw no Is it, uh, so it's obviously before Heseltine oh yeah um Visual IFG has an experience. Oh, no, sorry, because it's created by Churchill at some point. Yes, oh, correct. Exactly. Yes, yeah. correct. Oh, nice. I'll course. give you a point each. Okay. It's the war cabinet, 1942, bringing Labour people in. Right. Uh, yeah, and that was brought in as Deputy Prime Minister. Very good. Uh, question number two How many ministers did Harold Macmillan sack in his infamous 1962 Night of the Long Knives? Cabinet ministers. Eight, eight I think. Seven. Paul's got it. Seven. Nice. Two, oh, wow. one. Nil. Nil, yeah, and don't. we leave them beating these two on that question. <laughs> uh, question number three. Which cabinet minister became chief whip in David Cameron's July 2014 reshuffle? Mark Harper. No. Oh, <laughs> no. oh sorry, Michael Gove. Right? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Weren't you working for Michael Gove? I was not working for Michael Gove. No. <laughs> not at the time. Not at the time. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I was working for Francis Maud. Uh, ah, okay. Of course. Sorry. <laughs> Brilliant. Right, that's all we've got time for. Uh, I think that it was a draw, 2-2, uh, yeah, Henry yeah. and Paul. Um, I don't have a playoff question or a super over kind of question. <laughs> Sad. Uh, you can share the very exciting prize. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's unfortunately got, all, all we've got time for. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and please remember to subscribe on all the usual channels. Uh, now, in politics, it's not been that funny a week. We like to finish on a funny but um this week we're just going to leave you with the appalling reaction of donald trump supporters to the president's racist tweet about four ethnic minority u.s congresswomen and obviously and importantly omar has a history of launching vicious anti-semitic screeds
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.